0: welcome to what she said i'm your host candace sampson as the autumn leaves begin to fall and the days grow shorter there's a natural inclination to retreat indoors to find warmth and comfort it's a season that beckons us to slow down to reflect and to focus on personal growth This week on What She Said, we're not just embracing the essence of fall, but also delving deep into topics that resonate with the soul, challenge the norm, and inspire change. First up is Sherry Holmes, a trailblazer in the construction world. As one of Canada's top female residential contractors, she's not just building homes, but also breaking barriers, proving that the world of hammers and nails isn't just a man's domain. Her journey from the sets of homes on homes to advocating for women in trades is nothing short of inspiring. Then I'm joined by Pamela George, whose life story is a testament to resilience and determination. From facing the challenges of poverty in Trinidad and Tobago to empowering women with financial literacy, Pamela's journey is a beacon of hope and a lesson in breaking the cycle of financial dependency. You won't want to miss Ann Brody's Entertainment Roundup this week as she shares details behind Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio, the semi autobiographical dramedy, the Persian version, and the return of everyone's favorite curmudgeon, Fraser Crane, in a new look at an old series out on Paramount Plus Now. Navigating the challenges of menopause can be daunting, but Angela Johnson is here to change that narrative. As the CEO and co founder of Sano Living, Angela is on a mission to revolutionize women's health during menopause, offering support guidance and a community for midlife women parenting teens is no easy feat and Allie Payne knows it all too well join us as we delve into the intricacies of parenting during the teenage years and the trap of pass-fail thinking that many parents fall into Lastly, if you're looking to pivot in your career or find the right job fit, Michelle Nadon is here to guide the way. With over two decades of experience in recruitment and career empowerment, Michelle offers invaluable insights into navigating the ever evolving employment landscape. Join me for these captivating stories and more only on What She Said right here on Blast the Radio. Today, we're diving into a topic that's not only timely, but also essential. Women breaking barriers in traditionally male-dominated fields. Joining me is a trailblazer in this arena, Sherry Holmes. As one of Canada's top female residential contractors, Sherry has made her mark in the world of construction and design. You've likely seen her on shows like Homes on Homes on the DIY Network, and she's been a prominent figure on CTV Life, HGTV, and CTV. But beyond the screen, Sherry's real impact lies in her advocacy For women in the trades, inspiring countless individuals to take up the hammer, the wrench, and the blueprint. Welcome to What She Said, Sherry.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. You're so sweet. That was wonderful.
0: I'm so glad you're here. I've been wanting to talk about this topic for a while, and you've been a significant advocate for women entering the trades. I mean, I think we know, but maybe most don't. What drew you to the industry, and how did you navigate the challenges of being in this really male dominated space?
1: Um, that's an interesting question. I actually never thought that it was a viable career option for me. I never thought I'd work in the trades. Yes, I grew up with Mike Holmes as a father and I did grow up on a construction site. But to me, that was a fun thing that we would do together as a bonding experience or help that I would give him on his house. I never thought it would be a career. And I got I graduated high school with no idea what I wanted to do, working odd jobs. And I, just, I just wanted to make money to travel the world and you know have fun. Um, and then you quickly realize that, oh, you do need some kind of career and ambition in life. And my dad really pushed me to join his company and join the construction crew. And long story short, at 21, I decided, hey, I'll give it a shot. I don't even know how to read a measuring tape, but I'm going to try it. I came out to New Orleans and I've been on the construction crew ever since. So it was not, um something that I aimed to be, but something that I started a little bit older. And um, I've never left. It's been amazing to try something different, do something that's different. Um, There has been hardships with uh, my gender on occasion. And I think a lot of people have more issues than I ever had. I have worked with some wonderful, talented, um, different men that want to make a positive spin on everything. Um, especially Frank Cosolino. So I'm doing this interview in front of people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so shout out to the people in the yeah. room. <laughs> shout out to Bill and Frank. <laughs> <laughs> and there's often a misconception about the trades being a man's world. Yes. So how do you think this narrative can be changed? And, and what role do media and education play in this shift?
1: I think it's really important to talk about and and meet other women who are in general, generally male dominated industries, no matter what that is. And, um, the umbrella of skilled trades is so large. You don't understand how many different jobs and career opportunities are in the skilled trades. So if we are discussing it, more people are hearing about it. So the more we can get out there and show them, I did an event last night where I spoke and, um, I met several different women who have their own businesses, whether that's in painting or welding um, construction. So it's just wonderful to see that there is more interest and more people willing to join this. Um, It's just honestly, knowledge is power. So the more you hear about it, the more you're pushed to learn more.
0: Absolutely. It's that whole expression, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. So it's really important for you, especially because you have this prominent role to be out there encouraging this. And, and if you could give advice to young women who are considering a career in the trades, but might be hesitant because of these societal expectations and stereotypes, what would you say?
1: Uh, My biggest thing is I was one of you. I was so afraid. I was terrified to be the person who didn't know anything. I never wanted to look like the girl on site. I always wanted to be good at what I was doing. And in all honesty, you can't be good at everything. And it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to feel uncomfortable. Is it always wonderful? No. But ask that person for help. Ask someone else. Reach out. Um, I think you just have to go ahead and try something different, because as soon as I was pushed out of my comfort zone, that's when I succeeded and realized what I really love in life. So go ahead and try it. Educate yourself. Um, There's different events and different um, websites and things you can join so you can try different trades, which is really important because, again, there are so many different skilled trades out there. How are you going to know what you're going to be amazing at and what you'll love if you do not give it a shot?
0: And you just queued up the my next question beautifully here because there are so many opportunities within the trades from carpentry to electrical work. Is there are there any specific areas within the trades that you've noticed are becoming more popular among women or need more people desperately? Did you know
1: that a skilled trade um so a, a cosmetic in the cosmetic industry is a skilled trade. Um hair styling is a skilled trade, working with clay is a skilled trade, baking is a skilled trade. So there are so many things that you can do that are considered a skilled trade. But in the construction atmosphere of skilled trades, um I notice a lot of women gravitating towards welding and painting and things that are a little bit more attention to
0: detail. All right, excellent. And worksite cr- culture is, is crucial, obviously, for ensuring everyone feels included yeah. and respected. So how, how have you seen worksite dynamics change over the years, especially with more women entering the field?
1: I think a lot of the time, even in the past, is when you, when you would get uh, a degrading comment or a joke, um, People would feel like, it would, hey, it's funny, I'm just welcoming you by saying this inappropriate thing. And sometimes it's got to be something that really just, you know, uh, slides off the back there and you just ignore it. However, there is a time and place for everything, and um, it's really important that we have these discussions to have more women on site and to have those women feel comfortable. So if there's something that happens and you are not okay with it, you're allowed to say that. Just be like, hey, that kind of makes me uncomfortable. And I think a lot of um, men and people on, on sites are so receptive to those things. If I were to tell anyone I work with, like, hey, that made me feel uncomfortable, the apologies I would get because nobody wants to hurt your feelings. For the most part, people do not want to actually cause you harm, offend you. They're just trying to, sometimes make a joke. And like I said, not always is that acceptable. But um, you're allowed to express your, your feelings towards something that's being said in your direction, if that makes sense.
0: Have you have been doing this for how many years now? A decade? I, uh, a long time. Yeah, I'm
1: not even sure. I can't do that math.
0: <laughs> is, is there a moment that really stands out to you is that you take deep personal pride in?
1: Um, yeah, actually, uh, the biggest thing I always talk about and I will never forget is my very first construction job was when we did homes in new Orleans. I had never really been on a site before in that kind of capacity. And I had no idea what I was doing. Like I said, I was not joking. I failed measurement in school and I could not read a measuring tape. And I was here out of place on a construction site. Um, super nervous. One of the only women I didn't want, everyone to look at me and be like, "Ugh, she doesn't know what she's doing. I was terrified. And my brother actually, and he's my younger brother, had to take me aside and he would teach me how to read a measuring tape. And I had to count the ticks on a measuring tape in order to figure it out. But I did. And I made sure that I worked as hard as I possibly could. When everyone would go and have a break, I'd stay and work. When people were eating lunch, I'd stay and work. You eat while you're working. I just wanted to prove that I could do it. Um, whether I knew everything, it didn't matter. It was the fact that I have self-respect and can work that hard and do what any man can do. And that's probably my proudest moment on a construction site is at the end of that job. I had several different people trying to poach me to work with them. And I still, I'm not the best person on a site, but hard
0: work goes to show you what you can do, right? Absolutely. You can learn anything if you put your mind to it and put the time in, uh, what steps can industry leaders, take to foster a more inclusive environment? Any advice for somebody listening who maybe has a construction company or is looking to employ women?
1: I think it's really important to further education for women as well so they feel more comfortable. I was working with a few people uh, last night and there's different competitions throughout wherever you're located so in this situation Ontario that you can go and um, compete in you can be the top five females who are competing in sheet metal and you're building something that everyone else is doing and seeing like who's the best of the best and I think the more you push the women who are around you to further themselves and educate themselves the more confidence you're building and the more women are going to be drawn in when you see women succeeding you want to be part of that.
0: This is something that you obviously talk about passionately. You're very invested in it. And, you know, where can people keep up with you and follow along? Because you are obviously advocating for women every day to be in the trades. Yeah,
1: thank you. Um, so I'm on Instagram, just Sherry Holmes. I have uh, Twitter, which is Sherry L Holmes. It's for my middle name. It's not Cheryl. My name is not Cheryl. Uh, I get that <laughs> a lot. Um, and you can also go to our website at makeitright.ca and we have tons of information there and a lot more learning and articles that you can read.
0: All right, incredible. Sherry, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. So nice to meet you. Thank you.
0: CareToKnow.ca is a free resource where Canadians receive the latest health information, updates on new and existing treatments, and advice from Canadian doctors via email. After enrolling at CareToKnow.ca, you'll receive accurate and reliable information from trusted Canadian medical experts delivered directly to your inbox. Members can also access the website for information on a variety of health-related topics. Through resources like vodcasts, podcasts, and live webinars, Canadian experts discuss how to manage a number of medical conditions and provide the latest knowledge and advice to help you make informed decisions about your family's health with your own health care provider. To sign up and start learning more about the health matters that impact you most, enroll in caretoknow.ca today.
2: to Candace Sampson and what she said.
0: My next guest is a testament to the power of resilience, determination and the importance of financial literacy. Born into poverty and raised by an illiterate mother in Trinidad and Tobago, Pamela George faced immense challenges from a young age, but she didn't let her circumstances define her. Instead, she used them as a stepping stone to break the cycle of poverty and empower herself and countless other women with the knowledge of money management. Today, she stands as a beacon of hope, teaching women how to be financially empowered through her signature system, the seven pillars of money management framework. Pamela joins me now. Welcome to what she said, Pamela. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So can you share with us, um, how your early experiences with poverty and homelessness shaped your perspective on money and financial literacy?
3: Well, growing up in Trinidad, growing up poor, I didn't realize I was poor until maybe my teenage years. But the moment I realized I was poor and why I was poor, I knew I didn't want it. I didn't want to be poor. And I just from a very young age did what I had to do to get out of it. Um, sadly, when I realized I was poor and I realized why I was poor, it fell on the shoulders of my mother. And the mistakes she made and learning that it was money mistakes that she made when she was very good at making money. That was confusing at a young age. But as I grew and I learned more, I, I realized you can be hardworking, making lots of money. You could be bright and intelligent and still not be good with money. So I made it my mission to learn about money for myself. And then I realized, no, I need to help other women as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, your mother made mistakes. How did those experiences influence your approach to money and your decision? You know, you mentioned this is why you're into this, but how did it influence you specifically and your approach?
3: I think, so my mother back in the day, Indian woman in Trinidad, uh, she had no education. She didn't go to school. She didn't know how to read or write. Like, didn't even know the alphabet kind of thing. And I feel that that lack of, of literacy played a part. But also how she was brought up as a woman, um, not just in Indian culture, but I see it here in Canada as well. Just women generally, what society puts on us. Like when, when I think about it and I talk to my clients, It's as though we're not supposed to be good with money or the expectation is that we're not good with money and we fall into that groove whether we're aware of it or not, right? My mother, what happened to her, again, society at the time, she felt that even though she had this money and good at making it, a man was always better at managing it. So she handed over the money to a man who in the end, just robbed us all. And I say us because it was her money. It was supposed to be for her children as well. And he robbed us all of the land that she built the house on, the house itself, any savings, anything like that. And we were homeless for years as a result of it.
0: So you now have this system, then the seven pillars of money management. <clears throat> we don't have a lot of time, but maybe you could give us a brief overview of, of what that is and how it works and helps women.
3: Yeah, sure. I'd love to. <laughs> um, so when I moved to Canada, I, I, I realized that uh, women, when, when I talk to them about money, the first place they'll go is investments right? And this is whether or not they had debt. This is whether they or not, they had a balanced budget. And I was confused. You know, when you're looking at investments and long-term savings and that type of thing, there are some things that need to be in place first. And those are the seven pillars, right? So what I do, I work with women to get them set up with the seven pillars of money management, and then they're in a position to invest long-term and move forward. So the seven pillars are, balanced budgeting. And I say balanced budgeting because it's very different from a budget. You can have a budget with a huge deficit, right? That is not the type of budget we want. We want a balanced budget. Debt elimination is the second pillar. If you're looking at uh, managing your money well, having a, a, a future that is well secure financially, you need to not be bogged down by consumer debt in particular. So we talk about, and my pillar, my second pillar is debt elimination. And when I work with women, I help them to get on a plan to eliminate their debt. The third pillar is, is what I call the money matrix. And really what it is, is a system for your money. Most people I meet don't have a system for their money. And usually you need to have a few systems well, at least four or five systems. Most people I meet don't even have one. So we, I help my clients create systems based on their habits and the way they operate. The fourth pillar is something I call trauma-informed money mindset. We all have issues when it comes to money and belief systems. Um, starting from when we we're a child, sometimes it's societal, so sometimes it's generational, but we all have money trauma and we need to address it. By no means am I a therapist, but I get the conversation started. We address some of the issues. And if you have deep, deeper issues, then you go see a therapist, but we definitely address money mindset. The, the, and that's the fourth pillar. The fifth pillar is saving for success. Yes, we need to save for retirement. Yes, we need long term savings, but there are other things you need to save for. And I think of a client I had um, in Toronto, and she had close to a million and a half saved in retirement money, right? But her kitchen sink broke, and she didn't have $700, to pay the guy to come and fix it. And that's the kind of thing. It's saving for success. It's very different from, it's not just saving for your future self. It's important. That's very important. But there are other elements and other layers of savings. The sixth pillar is wealth protection. As women and, and, Particularly I think of my mother whenever I think I say the term wealth protection. When we've worked and we've saved and we've built, we need to protect what we have. And that's the sixth pillar. The seventh pillar is go aligned goals. And I believe the way we earn, the way we spend, and the way we manage our money needs to be aligned with our values and our goals. And I br- that comes all together when clients work with me on the seven pillars.
0: I love all of those because you know we do often hear we get the that- that message, invest, 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 hammered into us. And oftentimes it's impossible to invest when you still haven't dealt with all those other things. Uh, So this is great advice. I want people to be able to connect with you, obviously, and work through these seven steps uh, and learn with you. So how can they do that?
3: Sure. So my website, um, sanddollar.co, you can reach out to me there, book a call, or send me a text,
0: 613-407-1478. All right. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today, Pamela.
3: Thank you for having me,
0: It's time for Saturday Night at the Movies with Anne Brody, and we're kicking things off with a look at Killers of the Flower Moon, a new
2: Martin Scorsese film. Candice, this is the film of the year. It is spectacular. It's about white settlers in Oklahoma at the turn of the century who murdered uh, at least 60, perhaps hundreds of Osage women Uh and and men, um, because they had had oil discovered on their property, so these guys, including Leonardo DiCaprio's character, would marry a local woman who was wealthy, and uh, you know, take her money. And the thing is, it was the Osage County in 1910 to the, uh, was the richest per capita place in the world because of this oil find. So now Robert De Niro plays a local sort of, you know, kingmaker, and he encourages uh, DiCaprio's character to marry um, this wonderful woman, uh, Millie, played by. Lily Gladstone, who I'm sure is going to get a nomination. Um, And we just follow them and other people that they know in the community through what happened. It is incredibly moving, seismic, complex, malicious, beautiful. So much going on here. And I'll tell you, three hours and 26 minutes flew by.
0: Wow, that's a long film.
2: Yeah. And it was so powerful. I mean, I had a good cry afterwards. I couldn't sleep that night, and I felt tired the next day. That's the power of Killers of the Flower Moon. And I'm curious, so I'm assuming this is based on a true story. Are the
0: characters in it based on
2: well, real people, or are they... They are. They name names. Yes, indeed. Uh, And an FBI agent comes in. He's played by Jesse Plemons. Oh, I love him. He's sort of a combination of people. I know. Isn't he fantastic? He is one of the best. Yeah. So you've got to mark this. You've got to see it. Maybe not this weekend. I think there'll be a lot of people in the theaters. But this is, in my opinion, Martin Scorsese's best film. And legacy clincher.
0: Wow. That says a lot, Ann. Oh, yeah. Okay. I got to see it. All right.
2: Uh right. Let's move on. You've got the Persian version. What's that about? What's <laughs> yeah. that about? Well, now for a complete change of tone, it's kind of driven by Cyndi Lauper's song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And it's about um, a girl, Layla, the only daughter in an American-Iranian family of eight brothers and their mother. Now, their mother, we follow her from when she was betrothed and married and pregnant by age 14 in Iran. And she, she escaped. She came to the States, got married. Settled down, had a good life, and became a real powerhouse. She was an entrepreneur, real estate developer. Anyway, she has a kind of a troubled relationship with her daughter. Her daughter is so anti-traditional. She goes to a Halloween party wearing a bikini bottom and a hijab. Can you imagine? (laughs) Anyway, so it's a lot of fun. It's kind of scattershot. It, it tries to capture an awful lot in a short period of time. But it really is, it's kind of a delight. And, and of course, the daughter becomes pregnant by a trans man. I mean, it's so now. Um, and the storytelling is, is so earnest and wonderful. So that's, you know, go see it, the Persian version. All right, excellent. Uh, next up, we have Days of Happiness. Yes, out of Montreal. Um, it concerns a woman who is uh, uh, the conductor of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. It's not a documentary, but um, it's uh, Chloe Robichaud starring... And she's reached a, a point, a tipping point in her life because things are happening. She's got to decide whether to take a, a permanent gig there or continue to the travel of the world. But her father, who's been her agent her entire life is becoming increasingly territorial and abusive. And he's just a bully. So she's got to get out of that. Um, and you know, her, her mother, her father's wife dies and he has like zero reaction. It's the strangest character. Um, but you know, very well done by Sylvain Marcel. Um, so it just drives this story about this woman's kind of recovery from all of this and how she moves in with her lover and, uh, how things, how she tries to fix things. And what is really remarkable about it is the Metropolitan Opera of New York and Philadelphia Orchestra, who served as uh, the film's musical consultants, collaborated. And the music, of course, throughout the film is stunning.
0: All right. And that is in
2: theaters? Uh, it's on Netflix.
0: All right. Excellent. Uh, let's talk about Fraser because I am, it's, it's on air. It's ready for streaming now on through Paramount. Uh, I'm curious, how does it stand up in 2023?
2: Well, I went, I love the series. Everybody did. But I was quite dismayed by Kelsey Grammer's politics right. over the past few years. Right. And I was sort of like, I don't want to, but I did. It's fun. <laughs> the song about tossed salad and scrambled eggs is still there, the same opening. But, you know, the major characters are all gone. It's just, it's just uh, Frazier living in Boston. Um, he's moved from Chicago, where he had a hit TV show, and he's uh, been offered a job at Harvard, which, of course, would appeal to his ego. Uh, but his son lives in Boston. They've got a really awkward relationship. Um, Freddie, remember Freddie? Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah, so it's uh it's their hijinks and he has a new best friend who's a Harvard professor, uh played by Nicholas Lyndhurst, who's a tremendous English um comedic and dramatic actor. So and and they joke, you know, the only girls we could ever cuddle up with were the Bronte sisters. <laughs> <laughs> and Lilith is mentioned a couple of times in the show, um, but yeah, you know he's still he's still a fish out of water. He's still witty. He's still a snob. All those things remain. And despite his politics, I'm so glad the show's back.
0: All right, thank you. Well, that's a good endorsement, Anne. So uh, and and, any, and I I'll watch it. At least give it a try because heaven knows we ne- heaven knows we need a laugh. Right. So. All right, Anne, thank you so much, and we'll see you next week for another Saturday Night at the Movies.
2: Okay, bye. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming right up.
0: Feeling like your teen has become a stranger overnight? Allie Payne, a renowned expert featured on what she said understands your struggles. With her step-by-step framework, she's helped thousands of parents like you rebuild that precious bond. Don't wait. Discover Allie's secrets to a mutually respectful and connected relationship today at alliepayne.com. we're looking at a topic that affects millions of women worldwide, but often remains shrouded in silence and misconceptions. Menopause. With me now is Angela Johnson, the CEO and co-founder of Sano Living, a trailblazing initiative that aims to revolutionize women's health, especially during the challenging phase of menopause. Drawing from her personal experiences with perimenopause and postmenopausal symptoms, Angela has dedicated herself to creating Canada's first clinically-backed virtual health center for midlife women. Angela, it's a pleasure to have you with me today.
4: It's a pleasure to be here, Candice. Thank you for inviting me.
0: So, your journey um, is deeply personal. So, can you share um, with us how your experiences with perimenopause uh, inspired you to create this platform?
4: Yeah, sure. So, I was in my mid to late 30s and having symptoms, but I didn't know those were hormonal change symptoms that were tied to menopause. Um, And uh, it took a gynecologist. For other reasons I went to to tell me that that's actually what was going on and so I was able to find hormone therapy in my early 40s and I got back to thriving and um, I went on to start a company I left my career at IBM started a company and I did really really well and then I, I sold my company, and I retired, and I thought, oh, I don't need my hormone replacement therapy anymore. I'm postmenopausal. I've been that way for so long. I must be fine. So I quit cold turkey without telling my gynecologist what I was doing. That was a really bad idea. <laughs> I crashed. Um, not only did the you know un- unfathomable hot flashes and night sweats come, but the mood, oh, I had no motivation. I was in a funk, um, no interest to do anything other than sit on the couch and, you know, uh, play bridge. So um, I, I went back to my hormonal therapy um, and I've been doing great ever since. And it made me realize that, you know, we need solutions for women. So back I came to work.
0: And, and I was alarmed to learn that 10% of Canadian women leave the workforce due to menopausal symptoms. Why do you think there's such a lack of awareness and understanding about the full spectrum of menopausal symptoms? Because this is clearly impacting on a much larger level than I think most know.
4: Yeah, for sure. And we need more research in this space. It's been not well-explored in the past and, you know, we're making improvements, but more work needs to be done. But a big part of it is, is that um, it's something that women have not been able to have a conversation with their, their, their clinicians, with their, their doctors. So when we go and ask questions about um, our pregnancies and our postnatal care, they're right there for us. But unfortunately in um When doctors are are studying, they're not actually getting much time spent on midlife care and how hormonal change impacts women. So it's only if they personally explore it that they really develop any skills and expertise in it. And this is the biggest challenge that we face is that actually finding clinicians that have the experience.
0: So let's talk about then what this means for businesses and organizations. Uh, what do they face when experienced women leave due to these menopausal challenges? And, and, and what can we do to, to, to help it prevent this?
4: Yeah, so there was a study published um, very recently by the Canadian Menopause Foundation. They do a, an annual report each year. So this was their bi-annual. They've done they've done two now. And it actually states that um, with the help of Deloitte that the economy burden, the burden on the economy for women Have experiencing unmanaged menopause symptoms is around 3.5 billion. That's a big number. And it's great that we actually have a number now. Um, What I think, you know, there's a real push around, and the UK has been doing this for quite some time, around policies and accommodations. My concern is that if we fall short and we focus on policies and accommodations, that what we're going to see is that um, the the ground that we've forged of the generations of women of hard work before us to get us in the positions that we're in now in the management roles and in the boardrooms and leadership roles as CEOs that we're going to possibly lose that forged ground because there will be individuals in management and hiring decisions and promotion decisions that are going to say we have to accommodate her in her prenatal and postnatal years. Now we have to accommodate her in her midlife years. Why would we promote women in these roles? However, if we give women access to timely care with clinicians that have the expertise to treat them and manage their symptoms, we're going to see that women are still remaining thriving through the midlife years and they're dominating in the workplace and doing everything that they set out to do when they establish those careers. So tell
0: me then how Santa Living works for people listening.
4: Right. So I'm really passionate about making sure that women have access to these these clinicians. So what we did was we created a virtual health center where women can come, they can get education because so much of it is a lack of awareness and they can't have the conversations with their their clinicians because it just fall short. So they can come and they can ask questions and they can learn from our smart virtual assistant. And so there's no fear. There's no judgment. You just ask whatever you want and you get quality content because it's been trained on thousands of sources. And then they can also do free assessments. So they can do a free clinical assessment and understand what their symptoms, how severe they are. And then uh, where they are on their menopause journey, and they can also then see what treatments and effective interventions they could use from natural remedies to um, medical or to uh, health and wellness and lifestyle habits changes. So all of those things are effective ways to manage our symptoms. And so from there, then they can see actual clinicians, they can have a virtual consult, they can get prescriptions if they're eligible for them. Not everybody can take hormone therapy, but some women can. And so they'll get a personal uh, guide, care plan guide to manage their symptoms and they can also set their goals. So I want to remove the fact that, you know, when I cough, I have to squeeze to make sure that I don't have a leak. Maybe Very that's comedy. one of the <laughs> things I want to stop, right? Um, Or maybe it is I want a night of free sleep where I don't have a night sweat. Or I would like a day where I don't have to strip off the layers and be embarrassed in the room because my face is just flushed with sweat. Whatever their focus and whatever their goal is, they can set that, and then the clinical team is there to work as one team to help support her. And that could be she re- she requires a physiotherapist, and maybe a, a doctor, or maybe she needs a dietitian and a naturopath. It, it's up to her to help to choose her clinical team and to support her through that.
0: And there are forty 48- eight symptoms associated with menopause. That's a lot to wade through. Uh, So I am assuming that the education component really covers a lot of these as well, because perhaps there's symptoms people don't even know are related.
4: Very much so. And this is what stumps a lot of clinicians as well. You know, joint pain, tinnitus, urinary tract infections, um, you know, all of these things are related, but most people don't know that they are. So it can be really confusing about, is it my hormone changing or is it another underlying medical condition? And often it gets treated as an un- another underlying condition and then nothing's improving, but I'm on these medications and I don't understand why I'm not getting better. And this is where things like this need to be explored with clinicians who are experienced in both sides of what the concerns are so that they can really flesh out what the challenge is.
0: And I'm assuming that if the people who sign up with you have a primary care physician, that you you are in communication with them as well, that you share this information?
4: Yeah, it's absolutely critical. So the first thing we ask when, when a woman comes on board is, does she have a family physician? And has she had a conversation with that clinician? If she hasn't, we encourage her to go back and do that, especially once she's educated and she understands what's going on and she understands what menopause is and the symptoms that are underlying in it, then she can have a far more effective conversation with her family care practitioner. But if um, that clinician doesn't want to treat her, then she's always welcome to engage with us. And we always keep them up to date on anything that's prescribed and what's happening with her.
0: All right excellent. So people are listening. I'm sure uh, a lot of them are thinking, oh boy, do I need this right now. <laughs> so where can they go uh, to learn about the symptoms and then and then
4: work with Santa Living? So they go to Santaliving.ai and uh, they can start their journey from there. All right, incredible. Thank you so
5: much for joining me today. Thank you.
0: is a journey that is as rewarding as it is challenging, that often finds us navigating through uncharted territories, especially when our children enter their teenage years. The dynamics change, the conversations shift, and as parents, we often find ourselves oscillating between wanting to hold them close and letting them fly. Today, we have our very own Allie Payne, a seasoned parenting coach specializing in guiding parents of teens here to shed light on a particularly intriguing aspect of parenting, the trap of pass-fail thinking. Allie, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. So let's jump right into this then because there's a lot to get into. What does it mean to be trapped in a pass-fail way of thinking and how does it manifest in parenting?
5: Um, okay. So of course, as a good parent, um, I want my child, you know, you want your child to do well. And that means academically, socially in hobbies, um, you know, in taking responsibility for their life, their mental health, they're all the things, you know, you want them to do quotes. Well, the problem is that because our generation was raised in performance-based thinking was that our, our worth, our value and, uh, love, lovability was based in our external performance. So now we're raising kids and, um, you know, let's say they have a bad, they have a hard academic year or their mental health goes off the rails, uh, you know, or something. And so we go to that's it. It's done. It's all over. Now they're going to fail. They're never going to make it in life or, or specifically your child's had a really hard time in anything. And then they are again, quote, doing well, which sadly sounds like they're fixed. And then all of a sudden they have a relapse of some sort. It's go, see, I knew, I knew it was going to happen. It wasn't going to be. So it's this very black, white thinking that sucks the ever letting joy out of everything. Yeah. And I
0: can see how that will impact your kid's ability to cope as well, right?
5: It does. It does. And it and it kind of, as far as parents, it, it's like we're constantly, waiting for the other shoe to drop because we as you as a parent are internalizing your child's struggle as your own value and worth. So you are resisting your child from having a relapse or not doing quotes, unquote, well, because it feels internally difficult and challenging to be with as if somehow that makes you a bad parent, which it doesn't.
0: Right. And I love how you always bring this into it. You know, that parenting, we You know, we sort of equate it to morality. Yeah. And these are really good things to be thinking about. And so if somebody's listening and they maybe see themselves in this dynamic and they want to shift out of this, how can they move from this sort of pass-fail mindset to embracing vulnerability and sort of continuous learning as a parent?
5: Yes. Well, so first of all, look at your own life. You know, the times when you screwed up or, you know, got drunk at a bar or got an F on a, you know, or, or got fired or something, is that like, are you still wearing the red letter sweater of when that happened? And as that impacted every single part of your worth and lifestyle and social capability now, no, those were all speed bumps, mountains, some of them, valleys, some of them on the way to how you got here. So this existentialism, um, of, of this catas- catastrophizing what our p- teenagers do as if somehow what happened now in this moment, they failed a quiz, they bombed a test, they're, they, you got a letter home from the school, they're back on depression um, or anti-anxiety meds or something, is not, please stop taking that moment in time in their life and projecting it forward to where you are now And then filling in that entire space with nothing but doom, gloom, failure, broke, uh, homeless living under a bridge. Please stop. What is happening for your child right now is part of their journey and their experience. And your best job is to not attempt to be so uncomfortable with this that you need to eradicate it immediately. But Instead, get in their car as the passenger and ride shotgun as they steer and navigate their way through, knowing that they are strong, resilient, capable, confident enough to figure their way out with you as their trusted advisor.
0: Right. And and what if the roles are reversed? What if your child has this real pass fail mindset? How do
5: you help them? Yes, very true. Yes. Okay. So that is uh, kind of perfectionist thinking, which often comes from being raised in a performative environment, which again, no shade on any other parents, because we were all raised that way. So I know it's like, it's a hard thing to get our heads around because it feels normal for us. So um, I was one of those children. And it was because I knew very clearly, I was only loved if I did straight A's and got all the things. So for children who struggle with perfectionist thinking, it is about normalizing failure, normalize struggle, celebrate trying. Let go of the outcome, celebrate trying if it's a baby step, celebrate effort, celebrate um, courage to do scary things that feel scary, model doing scary things. Make your dinner table a time where you talk about the times where you fell flat on your face and what you learned and what you didn't learn and what you wish happened and what you wanted to happen so that we normalize um, being human because that is necessary for learning instead of this ridiculous um, anxiety provoking and totally impossible way of getting to where we wanna go without any failure or struggle along the way, because it is just simply not possible.
0: I feel like so many people are going to identify with this conversation. So I want people to be able to reach out to you because this is a big, big topic
5: and you're
0: always helping parents with it. So how can they connect with you?
5: Uh, On social media, they can find me at Allie Payne, Instagram and TikTok, A-L-Y-P-E-A-I-N or my website, AlliePayne.com has tons of free resources under the blog.
0: As usual, Ali, you are a wealth of wisdom. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll have you back again soon. Thank you so much. Family Dental Guelph is where the future of dentistry unfolds. Dr. Mandy Johal offers an unparalleled blend of expertise combined with a vision that seamlessly ties dental health to your overall vitality. Dr. Johal doesn't just look at your teeth, she understands the bigger narrative of well-being. Delve into a world where every aspect of your health is cherished and your smile and vitality coexist in beautiful harmony. Find out more about the future of dental care today at familydentalguelph.com. In today's fast-paced world, navigating the employment landscape can be a daunting task. Whether you're a fresh graduate or someone looking to pivot in your career, the challenges of finding the right job fit can often feel overwhelming. But fear not, because today we have someone with us who has been guiding individuals through these very challenges for over two decades. Michelle Nadon is not just a recruitment specialist, she's a career empowerment guru. With her company Media Intelligence, she has been bridging the gap between top talent and businesses, especially in the Canadian media and entertainment sectors. And when she's not busy shaping careers, she's shepherding the cause of animal rescue and advocacy. Michelle, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks, Candice. Great to be here. All right, so let's start with understanding the career life cycle. How do the goals differ between the younger generation like Gen Z and Gen A compared to older millennials, Gen X,
6: Y, and boomers? Every developmental level in the career um, has its own needs. Uh, Gen Z and A are starting out. They need a real awareness of how to navigate artificial intelligence and how to build relationships. The, um, gens X and Y are all looking to get up the corporate ladder in an environment where there's not always a lot of jobs to move to. So they need a lot of social equity, a lot of, uh, network contacts and excuse me. And their contacts need to be live and up to date. Uh, you lose nobody in your network because you're always going to need others to get a job. And then there's the older millennials and boomers who have gotten to the wisdom portion of their careers. They're looking to for something purpose-driven to give back. Typically, they have some very good ideas about what they do want to take out to the marketplace. And so then it's a question of teaching them how to get a new product or service into the marketplace.
0: And in today's digital age, personal branding is really crucial. So can you shed some light on how one can tailor their career marketing tools, such as resumes, bios, and
6: personal brands so that they stand out? Whether you're a freelancer or a staffer, There are different tools for either one of those roles. So say for instance, a staff job, if you're going for a staff job, you obviously need a resume. On the freelance side of the equation, you need website copy that is written to outline your product or service. Similarly, a staff person needs references, So, always ask for references, but a freelancer will require testimonials. A bio is always a good idea to have. If you're past 10 years in your career, please invest in a bio. It gives you really serious gravitas out there with the hiring managers And, um, obviously a staff person needs to be active on LinkedIn. If you don't have a digital presence, you are not present, period, full stop. Whereas an entrepreneur or freelancer is much more likely to be on X, Facebook, Instagram, or other social profile or social platforms. Um, and then the, the critical mission critical marketing tool for everybody, please, for heaven's sakes, your email signature is the most Important and your email signature can't just be. Thanks, Candace. It's got to be Candace Sampson. What she said, your hot links, maybe a tagline and even throw in a visual. So you actually get the hiring manager's attention and you look professional. And most importantly, they can contact you because no one is going to go digging for your information.
0: Absolutely. And it's one of those things, you know, people like in school, when you used to forget to put your name on a paper, (laughs) you you have to remember that email. Uh, What does it mean to be short listable?
6: Ah, uh, Okay. <clears throat> you know those situations where you see a posting online on LinkedIn or elsewhere, and uh, you look at it and it's in your field and you're like, oh, great, I'm going to jump on this and apply. And then, you know, a few days later, you've done that and you, you know, you're watching the metrics online and you realize that 600 other people have applied for the same job. Okay, well, I'll guarantee you as an executive recruiter of 20 years, 550 of those people, if not 575, are absolutely not applicable to the job. And the reason for that is because they don't self-screen. Whereas if you do the simple five-minute exercise, it's all it takes. Print the job description up. Go to the requirements. Go to each hard and soft requirement. Okay, I got a hundred percent of this. I got eighty percent of that. No, I'm more like a ninety on this one. Oh yeah, I got about sixty with my degree. It's related to it. Uh oh, I've only got twenty here. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Every single requirement. Break it down. Take a get a take a an impression within your own soul. What degree? What percentage of match do you do? Do you have? Get to the bottom, average it out. If you are over 85%, please hear me world, you are shortlistable. Excellent. And when you know you're shortlistable, it gives you way more confidence applying for the job. Furthermore, if you know you're shortlistable and your opening paragraph in your cover letter says something to the effect of, oh, you know, I'm I'm delighted to apply for this role. I've done an informal analysis of the job description, and I'm happy to report that I'm about a 90% match with room to grow for this role. Well, please tell me what recruiter isn't going to love you. And I love that, that it gives people confidence, like you said,
0: right? Like if you know you're confident, it, it, you know, if you know you, you're you going to have all of those requirements, it does give you a certain confidence. And, you know, when you're going into that interview
6: process as well, even. And it inspires confidence in the recruiter and confidence at the end of the day, Candice, is what's going to get you the job. It's the preparation and the research and the rehearsal on the front end that pays off so beautifully at the interview and higher negotiation stage.
0: Michelle, you have a book that I really want people to be able to find uh, because
6: it's so helpful. So can you tell people the name of the book and where they can find it? It's the second edition of Careers AF. I believe we all know what that stands for. And these are new rules and new tools for the post-pandemic gig economy. It's available on Amazon. And please don't believe Amazon when they say that there's only two copies left or whatever they have to say about it. Just order it. It'll show up much faster than they say it will. And honestly, this book tells you everything you need to know about how to manage your career going forward. And then we have an accompanying workbook that goes with it, that this, you know, the book tells you what you need to know. This tells you exactly how to do every one of those marketing tools so that you are completely set up for success. So the book is available on Amazon.ca and the uh, workbooks are available on mediaintelligence.ca. All right, wonderful. Uh I also just want to point
0: out that you're going to have a blog post up on whatshesaidtalk.com uh where we're going to put this interview but you're also going to be sharing some other tips and advice for people who are currently looking for a job. So thank you so much for joining me Michelle. This is this is fabulous and uh I hope it helps people right now. It's a it's a tough market out there. It
6: is. Thanks for the opportunity and good luck everybody.
0: That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with my newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and X for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok and threads at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson wherever you listen to podcasts to catch past episodes and extended interviews. I'll be back next week with more What She
6: Said.
5: Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com.
3: It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. Just remember, anyone can be a cash kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with The Cash Kid Podcast. That's right. Find us at CashKidPodcast.com or listen in on places
1: like Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Spotify, or YouTube.